Hello and welcome to episode 158 of the Cognicast, the podcast about software and the people who create it. I'm Russ Olson. This week, in his second outing as host, Christian Romney talks with Mia, whom you may know as 25% of the Apropos Closure podcast. And what an amazing conversation it is, covering everything from malware taxonomies to open source intelligence to economic geochemistry. But before we jump into the episode proper, I'd like to remind everyone that Cognitech is hiring engineers, project managers, product managers, technical writers, technical onboarding specialists, and educational specialists. So if being part of Cognitech sounds interesting and exciting to you, reach out to us at jobs at Cognitech.com. But for now, sit back, open your ears and your heart and your mind to Mia and Christian in episode 158 of the Cognicast. Hi, everyone, and uh, welcome to another installment of the Cognicast. Today is Friday, February 19th, 2021, and I'm Christian Romney, your host for this episode. It's my distinct pleasure today to bring you our guest, Mia. Mia, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. Been looking forward to this. This is uh, my second time hosting the show. So hopefully I don't do too poorly, but I've, I've been very much looking forward to speaking with you today. Well, thank you. Me too. It's great to be here. All right. I don't know if you're a regular listener, but before we dive in, it's customary on our show to start by asking our guests to share an experience of art with the listeners. What do you mean by that? Mm, that's open for interpretation. It could be visual arts, it could be music, really the sky's the limit. Oh, geez. Yeah, I, I knew this was coming. And I thought I should think about this. And then I didn't. I guess an experience of most of the way I experience art lately has been via the written word. Huh? You know, I, I love novels. And I was thinking the other day about how before before I moved here to the Bay Area, I was moving around constantly. And the only the only thing that felt like home after a while was uh, reading the book Pattern Recognition by William Gibson. I love that book. And I have read or listened to it in so many places everywhere I've lived. And every trip I've ever taken, because I have it in print form, Kindle form, and audiobook form, that now when I feel unsettled or unmoored in any way and I want to feel like I am going to a permanent place, I open it up. And through the prose and through that story, I begin to feel like I am home again. Oh wow, that's a beautiful story. That's very cool. I'm I'm not familiar with with his work. I must say, 
It's a little internet thriller. I was thinking about it again because I uh, recently read another internet thriller that takes on the same, not really subject matter as much as the same themes. So Pattern Recognition was William Gibson's reaction to September 11th. Oh, wow. And it isn't really about September 11th at all. It, uh, it barely mentions it. The, the character experiences you know, her own September 11th while it's happening and her father disappears on that day. But what it's really about is the sense of paranoia and the new connectedness that he envisioned on the horizon, which came to pass. And uh, Thomas Pynchon actually sort of tackled the same subject matter in a much more paranoiac way in Bleeding Edge, which I just finished reading. We found that one in a little free library on one of our walks with the dog and the baby. And I thought, wow, these are the same book from profoundly different worldviews. Uh, I think that there's a level of trust in pattern recognition, despite it being about paranoia, that I didn't see in Bleeding Edge. Uh, But I liked it a lot. That's really cool. So I just, I've already come away five minutes in, but just with two pretty incredible recommendations that I can't wait to explore. Oh, they're great. You should read them together. Uh. <laughs> Simultaneously. <laughs> yes. <laughs> pretty neat. So I guess, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what it is that you do uh, for those that, that may not know you from the community. Introduce yourself to us. Uh, hi. Okay. So I actually came to programming late in life from a, uh, a geology background that's I spent some time researching ore systems. So how, how rare metals get into the rocks that we mine them out of. And then I sort of floated around for a little while, came to programming purely by accident. I had taken a job working as a marketing coordinator for a nonprofit because grad school makes you do crazy things. <laughs> and I started automating the work that I was doing and then I thought, wow, this is more fun than the work I'm doing. Did a boot camp. Boot camp was in Ruby and JavaScript. That boot camp is dead now. It was the, the original programming boot camp, dev boot camp. And they shut down because they could not afford to maintain offices in the cities where they had to be, which is kind of an archaic problem as of the new remote workflow. Yeah. You know, if they had if they had held on, but I I have a lot of thoughts on boot camps. I, I don't know how helpful they really are. But it was it was it was nice to have the time and the space to study. And I got bored with the boot camp pretty quickly and started looking around and read a blog entry that did natural linguistic analysis on all the different programming subreddits. And it said that the happiest programmers wrote closure. And I didn't know what closure was, but I wanted to be happy. So I started researching closure and then just talked to everyone I met in the city of San Francisco about closure. And uh, <laughs> San Francisco being what it is, eventually I got a job. <laughs> Fabulous. So I have been, I've been programming for a little over five years now and solely in closure jobs. So it's... It's hard to escape. I don't really want to. You know, every time I think that I'm going to go do something else, then I don't. Uh, And I love closure. I want to see closure continue to be used everywhere. So I never have to write anything else. And so I spend a lot of time talking about it. A few years ago, I was approached by Ray McDermott about starting 
a YouTube show that he was starting. At the time, we didn't really know what it was going to be. We still don't know what it is. Uh, it's always in flux. But it's me, Ray, Mike Fikes, and Eric Normand. And we sit around and talk about closure. So that's been a lot of fun, too. And it's it's exciting to connect to the community. You know, we're really lucky here in the Bay Area where there's so many programmers that we have these programming communities. You know, in the before times, I used to be able to go to closure meetups, but uh, not everyone has that. And so it's it, it programs like this, programs like Cognicast and like Acropo, like Deafen are sort of meetups for people who can't get to meetups in the real world. And I think that that's about to become even more important because we are getting a lot more scattered now that everyone's working remotely. Yeah, I there's so much to unpack there, but I can I can definitely sympathize with that point of view. And really, I felt that way. I felt that way for a long time about you know making it easier for folks in the community to participate, even when they can't or don't have, perhaps in whatever community they happen to live in, they may not have a closure meetup that's nearby or sufficient local interest. So a, a few years back, Jeb Beach and I hosted the vir- virtual closure meetup. At, at least we did like four or five episodes and, you know, life being what it is, work gets in the way and other responsibilities too. But we had a great time and we had some fantastic guests on too. But I am familiar with, with Apropos. I've watched a fair number of episodes at this point. Yeah, you, you guys have, have a good time and always come away discovering something. So yeah, thank you. Thank you for the work you do. Thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's a, yeah, it's fun. It's fun. It's My fun. mom told me once she tried to watch it and she got bored. Well, it, it is sort <laughs> I of... I said a, it's not for you. It is sort of a, a niche uh, topic, I, I, I think. <laughs> That's safe to say. So one of the things I'm curious about, too, if you don't mind, I'm going to hop all over the place because uh, there's just so many cool things we're talking about. I'm, you know, I saw you have like a a master's in economic geochemistry, and I'm just curious if you could just tell me what that means. Uh, Yeah. So rocks have economically important metals in them in varying degrees. Mm-hmm. And when you get a high enough concentration of an economically important metal in a rock, you can mine it and get very rich. So geochemistry is the study of the chemical compositions and formations of rocks and minerals. And economic geochemistry focuses on economically important rocks and minerals. You know, I've always been a rock hound. I love rocks. I actually, well, so I am, I'm autistic and I am face blind. I, it takes me a long time to, I have to learn people's faces. Uh, I don't have automatic face recall. And I recently learned that face blindness, the automatic face recall that most people have, that automatic recall maps to something else in face blind people, which makes sense to me because for me, that thing is rocks. So oh. if I see a rock once, I know what it is. And if I see it again, I will know what it is again. The the rock is familiar to me the way faces, I guess, are familiar to everyone else. Oh wow! Uh, so that made that made studying geology very easy and gave me a lot of free time in college. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, I, I can do it all the way from you know I can see it on the outcrop. I know what it is. I can see it on the countertop. I know what it is. 
I can see a microscope slide of it. I know what it is. I can see the chemical composition of the minerals involved and I can tell you what the rock is. And this is solely a quirk of how my brain is set up. <laughs> so oh, that, that, uh, that, that is pretty, pretty impressive, nevertheless. So it, it's, I mean, you said you found closure more interesting than the work you're doing, but that is not to discount how interesting that topic is. That, that does sound pretty interesting. The problem with geology is it's great to study. I, I love it. I love rocks. But if you want to make a living in geology, you end up working for the extraction industries. Mm, surely. And I, you know, BP actually paid for my grad school. That was very nice. It's very nice to have free grad school, but that's not really free, you know? Right. I, I was not comfortable working for industry. So I had to leave. Well, that makes sense. And you discovered a new passion also. Yeah. 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 So how do you employ closure in your day job? So right now I am working uh, building security software for enterprise. And I am also, we have another project. So we, we build this security software. It's really cool. It's got a lot, it's got a lot of bits to it, right? So it's a sandbox. So you can explode a malicious link in it and it will tell you all the ways that link is malicious and it will tell you what kinds of attacks it's associated with and what kinds of malware it's trying to download and what that malware does and where that malware comes from. And that's really exciting to me. I love taxonomies. There's this whole taxonomy of malware that plays out every time you open one of these malicious links in our sandbox. And that's always changing. Malware is always moving. It really, computer viruses and human viruses are actually very, very similar. They evolve in the same way, right? A defense goes up against a computer virus. The computer virus learns to evade the defense. They spread, you get more versions of them. It's, it's so cool. So that software is, the back end is built entirely in Clojure. And then there are some Clojure script front end components as well. And we are also working on a project to categorize and keep track of all these different malwares. You know, sort of we're becoming cyber epidemiologists, right? Right now, the, the data and the knowledge about malware, about these viruses is scattered all over the internet. And a lot of it is in human language that mm. isn't easily parsed into computer programs. Right. So what we're doing is we are building this taxonomy of malware where we can load the malware into our system and automate the generation of these documents. So the most recent thing I did was write a couple of functions that turn these big JSON blobs about attack patterns into attack patterns that go into our database. And it's really nice because there's like a whole database of attack patterns and then you can download the individual files for individual malwares that have those attack patterns and then produce a really nice file that says this malware uses these attack patterns and this is what they look like in our database. And, you know, Clojure is great for that because there's, right, that's the joy of taking a big blob of data and turning it into 
a smaller blob of data that has meaning to you. It's my favorite thing to do. Is there any relationship between the sort of, you know, what you're describing and something like Metasploit, I, I think is what it's called? Yeah. So Metasploit is, it's a tool that penetration testers use. Mm. And it it's also a tool that hackers use because it is so good. It contains all of these different exploits. Mm -hmm. So pretty much every time a new exploit gets discovered, it gets added to Metasploit. So uh, it can be used for, for good or evil, I guess. But it, it, it sort of is, you know, this compendium of exploits, similarly to how, you know, the software that you were describing a moment ago is the compendium of malware. Yeah. Well, and so there, you know, there, yeah, yeah. So, and yeah, malware is software that makes use of these exploits. And with, with Metasploit, you know, you can actually run these exploits. Right. So what we're building is, I like to think of it as a field guide where you, you, you see something and you, you recognize it as malware, and then you can find out what kind of malware it is and what malware it's related to and what exploits it uses and so on. So you're not really, you know, you're not running the malware. That happens in our sandbox, but you're learning about it. That's neat. And how, how does one go about getting, you know, or contributing or, or learning more about sort of all these, you know, how, how do you get your hands on the field guide? That's actually a good question. I don't know if it's open source or not. I should. I just got started on it this week. Let me see if it actually is open source. I don't know if it is. I'm sorry. I oh, should well, that, I mean, we, we can always add, you know, add an update to the show notes or something. But uh, that's okay. So so this is, you know, new and exciting to you It's just this week? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a, uh, I'm becoming a security guy now. Uh, <laughs> Cool. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I know one now. So how, how did you get started with the apropos cast? I know you said Ray had reached out to you and then, you know, what, what was that pitch like? You know, hey, let's just go chat about closure and yeah, spread good in the world. Yeah, that was pretty much what it was. And um, it was like, hey, you know, I'm thinking about starting a show and uh, <laughs> I've got, got a few invitations out for some other people and I'd like for you to contribute. Uh, if you'd consider it, you know, we didn't even know what we would call it. That's, that's my best Ray. Uh, that, 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 that was <laughs> I don't pretty think good. You'd appreciate it. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. That was, that was pretty good uh, for where I'm sitting. I, I think I have a little bit of a, uh, a overlap with one of your co-hosts, Eric Norman. Actually, we worked together ever so briefly at Reify Health. We, we brought him on to lend us a hand and, uh, so it was nice to meet him as well. So say hi for me next time you you chat. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a small world, you know. It is. It is. And, you know, a, a small but growing community. Yeah. Eric is so passionate about educating people. It, it shows. You know, that's like, yeah, yeah that's, he, he always has some new scheme to teach people more things. And it's really inspiring. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, I have so many topics, but I don't want to monopolize the conversation either. I'm, I'm just curious, you know, are there anything anything you'd like to chat about? Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> oh, if not, trust me, I've got I've got I've got lots more. I've got lots more um, lined up. My brain is kind of mush right now, so it's I am pretty much only thinking about you know. And this is this is part of part of the autism, right? When I'm on a train, it's hard to get off the train. 
Sure. So uh, you can you can take me off the security train, but that is what my mind is on right now. So no, it's, I'm it's sorry. hard for me to redirect. So please feel free to ask me other questions. Oh, no, no, not not at all, not at all. I, and I'm I'm like the dog on the train, looking out the window, saying squirrel. So it's it should make for a fun conversation. So we were talking about malware and viruses, and you mentioned the similarity between human viruses and you know computer viruses. And of course, that practically begs us to talk a little bit about how is, you know, the pandemic sort of impacting daily life, I guess, for, for all of us, you know, has changed quite a bit. But specifically, I'm curious about how you're adapting you know, your work circumstances. This is the thing I think that's on a lot of people's minds. You know, some folks are some companies are adapting more easily than others. What's your experience been like? So I'm really lucky where I am. It's fully remote and it's always been remote. Mm, okay. Well, that certainly helps. Yeah. So it, it has sort of exposed me to what, you know, I'm not going to call them best practices for remote, right? But you can tell that it's remote optimized at previous places where I've worked. You know, we've, we've had full-time remote people, but it's hard when you have an office where most people work. It's hard to not exclude remote workers just because there is that element of water cooler conversation. Sure. Right? These things are happening around them, around you, and the remote workers are not included. So coming from a, a blend of traditional and remote workplace to a remote-only workplace, some of the things that I notice are we so we don't use slack we use webex right but the the chat system is is the same more or less so i guess that the biggest difference is there are far fewer direct or personal messages pretty much all conversations happen in our small team channel and that sort of functions as the water cooler so it's not really a dedicated it's a work channel we do work, but it is also a social channel for us. So we just constantly talk to each other on there. And it has the feeling of, it almost feels like a, a, a group chat or a group DM on right. Twitter. You know, there's, right. a, there's, there's a congenial friendly feeling where we are, we are discussing the coffee that we're drinking, but also what we're working on. Right. And when you have a question that normally in an office, I would walk over to my coworker and ask. And I think that the, the impulse is to translate that on a chat into a direct message because the abstraction in your head is a conversation with my coworker. So since this is a conversation with my coworker, I want to directly message my coworker. But that doesn't actually map onto how conversations between coworkers happen in an office because me asking my coworker a question in an office isn't a direct message. It is overheard by other coworkers right. who might have important things to say about it. So this small group chat sort of functions as our pod, right? It's, it's as if we're all at the same set of desks. So I would ask my coworker a question in the channel by tagging them in the channel, but the question's visible for all of the coworkers in my pod to see. Right. And that is so helpful in keeping everyone on track 
with what everyone else is doing. And it's it's very helpful in knowledge sharing. It prevents those one or two person silos from being built. And it's a subtle thing that I think is totally cultural. Right. But it, it also ties into how abstractions, you know, like how the wrong abstraction can really cause your software to not function the way it should. Right. A, a group or a personal DM is the wrong abstraction for a conversation between two coworkers. Yeah, that's a good point. I'd never huh. really considered it that way. No, me neither. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> so you are you're uh, with Cognitech, you're at Newbank, and Cognitech's always been more or less remote, right? Has the pandemic affected you guys that much? Uh, no, it really hasn't. And I think that, you know, that's something that I think we have in common with your team, where companies that have sort of been doing it for a long time, we're, we're having, I guess, you know, thankfully, a much easier time than companies that were sort of forced or thrown into this transition kicking and screaming in many cases. So, so yeah, I, that's, that's why I like to ask the question in case there are folks that, you know, find themselves in that situation and could maybe benefit from the wisdom of your experience. So, yeah, I think, I think those little subtleties of human interaction, I think that you were just describing often get lost, right? You know, you'll see some article on the web, like how to do remote the right way. And, you know, the five things you need to be doing, that's the format these articles all seem to take, right? Or, but, you know, there's usually not a lot of substance there. So yeah, that was pretty neat insight you had. How do you guys socialize? Because we sort of have like uh, spontaneous, uh, someone will say like, do you, does everyone want to have coffee? And we'll all stop what we're doing and have coffee on Zoom, you know? Uh right, right, right. That's a great question. So it, it varies a bit, I think. So, you know, we have a very large Slack, certainly the, the, the largest Slack installation I've ever seen, but like. That literally thousands of channels like that is not an exaggeration. It, it's 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 mind blowing. So I mean, obviously, you only you know join the channels that are related to work generally, but there are sort of social channels as well where folks hang out and you know like a random or or some special interest channel. We have a big one at Cognitech is a board games channel. That's that's kind of a pretty important one in our world. But we, you know we just uh, we'll we'll chat you know and folks will you know, weigh in in the various chats throughout the day, you know, depending on their schedule. I mean, some folks are like, depends how you organize your day. Some folks read their email in the morning and get a little bit of human contact and then sort of turn to focusing on their work. Some do it later in the day, but you know, the, it, it's nice to have that outlet. I think it, it helps folks, you know, obviously for relationships to flourish and it, it helps build trust and it helps that we all really like each other. I think is is pretty cool too, but so that's that's part of play, it. Yeah. Do you play online board games? I do not, and I've heard of like Vassal, for instance, to play board games online. The only game I play online is chess. I'm kind of not not among the cool kids that way. <laughs> How about yourself? Do you? Oh no, no, I uh, I don't like board games. <laughs> Oh really? Okay. Well, yeah. Different strokes for different folks. That I can totally understand that. the The family here is not a. We're not a huge board game family. Rather, I am the biggest fan of board games in the house, which makes it hard to play. You know, multiplayer games. Oh. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. We have we have other things that we do. But but several Cognitex are are huge board game aficionados. 
So I enjoy. Well, yeah, I was. I I know that it's you know it's always a there's always a room for it at, at con at at con and it's that's great fun too because it's like a nice you know it's a cool social interaction you know you get to meet folks in the community you play a game together have some fun and I've always enjoyed that so yeah I'm looking forward <sighs> to to us being able to do that you know as a community again once we get I past miss it this. so much uh, I know. <laughs> I was so excited to take my family to Strange Loop. That's another great conference that's super enjoyable. Yeah. So have you, have, I, I take it you've been before or like on your own or you, you have? You yeah. Not, yeah. Okay. In, yeah. Uh, in 2019. And when I was there, I saw that like so many people had taken their families and I was like, oh, it's because this is, this is great. This is so fun. It's so thoughtful. Yeah. And uh, it's really, I, I really appreciated sort of the, the decisions that were made um, on the priorities. Like yeah. Strange Loop feels like it prioritizes inclusivity and also social good. Definitely. And yeah, that was, you know, I, I don't know any other conference that would give its main stage to a presentation requesting contributors for help with a GitHub repo that helps undocumented people find shelter. Right. I thought that was a really brave and exciting decision. And I was like, oh, man, I'm going to go to this every year. I'm going to take my husband. I'm going to take my baby. We're going to go to the museum. I love, <sighs> I love that city museum, too. It's it's so neat. So fun. Well, Although it'll the, be back. The bus at the top, I have to admit, is pretty scary. I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of heights. And sitting in the driver's seat of that bus is pretty <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> I really like that spider's web where you get to climb the ropes and like hang out mm -hmm. in, like in like, on the ropes in the ceiling. But then now as a parent, I'm like, oh no, like I really, I really want to be up there. You know, that's, that's always my question when I see like a tall building or a tall tree or something It's like, oh, I wonder if they let you get up there, but I don't want my child up there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you are braver than I am. That is for sure. But yeah, I, I don't want my child up there either. And yet I fell out of a lot of things as a kid. So maybe it'll be good for him. He's uh, already, he the only place he wants to be is on our shoulders. So we've got another one. Oh boy. <laughs> Future tightrope walker. That's another 9-11 novel that isn't about 9-11 that I haven't thought of in a while. Uh, Let the Great World Spin. That was about someone strung a tightrope in between the two towers and walked on it. Oh, there's a... So do you recall the author by any chance? I'm curious. Colin McCann. I haven't thought of it since I read it, but at least I, th I don't even know if it was actually about a uh, tightrope in between the two towers, if it was in between different things. But the the premise is the same, right? The world stops and everyone looks up. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. That's clever. Oh, yeah, it was. Uh, Philip Petit's 1974 tightrope walk across the Twin Towers. I saw on Netflix a documentary that I have not watched. I wonder if that is the topic. But it, it it's like the image, the keyframe image that they used to represent the documentary was the towers and somebody walking a tightrope. I just was it man on wire? I think so. That's it. That's exactly it. Is that a different a different event? Is I haven't this... actually seen it, but it's the same event. Oh, okay. It is the same yeah. event. Okay, goodness. I just the image scared me away. 
It's funny on this topic, though, and relating it back to something we, we, we opened the conversation with. We're talking about internet thrillers. So I watched Don't F with Cats on Netflix yesterday. Have you seen this? Oof, no, oh. I haven't. I, I always like look at it. And then uh, my husband, every time I like linger on it, my husband says, just so you know, that's going to upset you. And then oh, it was very, it was very upsetting. Actually, now, now that I think about it, come to think about it, I don't know if it was Netflix. It might've been HBO. They're all blurring together, but it is, it is shocking and upsetting. And it was not what I was expecting, but at the same time, I couldn't stop watching. But yeah, it's kind of an, I won't spoil it, but the there's like this community of ad hoc internet sleuths they respond to a rather shocking video involving some cats and they make it their mission to go find the person responsible for the horrors that they saw and you know the story just gets more bizarre from there it was completely engrossing so i i don't know if i recommend i mean if you like watching true, if you if you have a morbid, uh, you know, curiosity about true crime, it's it's an interesting and riveting watch. But I, you know, I, I stopped short of recommending just because the <laughs> subject matter is so disturbing. Yeah, I do like what we call a OS int, right? Which it sounds like is what they're uh, what they're doing, right? Open source intelligence, the idea that you can track someone down in their real life and find out about them just from the the public trails that they leave on the internet oh goodness and yes this is exactly that figures very largely in the story the ingenuity that i guess these os folks used for you know for good in this case is just it's just outstanding like finding the city where the person is located in by like analyzing, you know, the photo, obviously, but then let's go to Google Maps. You take this half of the city, I'll take that half of the city, and we'll just go street view until we find this. It's like, it also, goodness, I can't even imagine how long that must have taken them, you know, you know, not a tiny metropolitan city. We actually, uh, we in the group chat that I was in, one of the people in the group chat had a stalker and threw a couple of photos that. The stalker had posted to his Twitter account, we found who he was and where he lived. Oh, wow. Uh, using tools like that. You know, we didn't do anything with it, right? But knowing that, having that knowledge made my friend feel safer. Oh, I, I'm sure that's got to be empowering, right? Like, you're not, you know, just the victim of this, you know, who who is this person? That's got to that's got to be pretty scary. I'm, I'm sure it's empowering to know, like, I know who you are. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but it's a, uh, the, like what's out there. You, you have to, there is a lot of ingenuity involved, but you can find pretty much anything about anyone. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's part of when you're planning, you know, when we talk about hacking and we talk about security, like a big part of the way, a malicious program gets into your system in the first place is someone has to click on a link, right? Mm -hmm. And that's because firewalls are pretty good at what they do. And security software is pretty good at what it does. But the user is still the most important person on the computer. So anything mm -hmm. the user does will override these these controls. Right. The weakest so, link in the, in the chain. 
Yeah. So a lot of a lot of hacking effort actually goes into what we call social engineering, right? Trying to get the person to click on the link in the first place. And you'll use this OSINT to do it. So like you might you might try to identify someone in the company who you think is scared for their job or who you think is a suck up and you'll send them an email pretending to be from their boss. And, you know, if you have identified this person's motivations, then they're going to click on that. And now they've introduced the malware into their system. Yeah. Or one of the malware campaigns I was researching did this with fake sexual harassment complaints. Oh, goodness. So they identified people who might have reason to believe there was a sexual harassment complaint against them. And they send them this email that said, you've been accused of sexual harassment. Click on this to see the complaint. And that introduced the malware into the system. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that, wow. That's, and you can, you can imagine, especially, well, so that's interesting to tease apart, you know, whether <laughs> they had it coming because there was a re you said there was a reason to think that it was reasonably likely that that would happen. But nevertheless, well, and also like it, it doesn't just affect you, right? It affects exactly. the, the whole network. So once you have once the malware is in your network, then it's able to spread like you have given it the foothold into the network that it needs to spread to the other computers on the network. Sure. So it's it's the whole company suffers. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and, and you know, also don't mean to imply that folks don't. I mean, I would be curious, like if someone accused, if, if I got an email, it was like, you know, you've been accused of sexual harassment. I'd be like, be like what? What are you talking about? Click ow. here. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but also, like, I am autistic. So sometimes I say things to make people uncomfortable. So I'm always afraid of that. Like, I would be, it, it would be effective against me, honestly. Mm. Uh <laughs> Except now it won't. Because you so uh, black yeah, hats now, out anytime, there. Any, any, well, <laughs> you just don't click on a link in an email. Like <laughs> so, so I'm you know, I guess let's do some public service here. You know how folk, how should folks generally speaking? So I know that we have our corporate policies. So when in doubt, don't click on the link. You know we have a security team and just alert them to it, and they help us through it. And you know we we have training within the organization to you know, alert us to the kinds of these, these sorts of things. I confess the sexual harassment angle was not part of the training and is novel and <laughs> intriguing, but, you know, based on your, you know, exposure to this, you know, stuff in, in your line of work, I mean, what, what advice do you have for people to not get caught opening uh, malware? If it sounds to be too good to be true, it is. Right. So like a lot of, you know, one of the ways they'll get people is like, oh, you you won this thing or you've been selected for this award in your company. You mean the Nigerian prince that is uh, just wants me to hold his million bucks? That's not real. <laughs> no, but that is, uh, you know, there, there's a version of that, that sort of plays on people's egos or like like, you know, you've won this award. Your, your service has been recognized. So, you know, verifying the sender is really important. Verifying that this thing exists is important. Basically, you want to know everything about where the email came from. And that can be spoofed too. That's a whole other thing. And that's really scary. So anything that looks unfamiliar that you're not expecting is worth running by the security team. And that at least for, you know, work account stuff and, you know, in, in our personal lives though, I mean, I guess... It pays to be to be vigilant. Like even with the phone now, I don't even answer the phone if I don't recognize the number. 
I used to have like this, foam, oh, yeah. this FOMO of like, oh, maybe it's somebody I need to be talking to. And yeah, that, that doesn't happen anymore. If it's important, they'll leave a message. Yeah, no, that's, and that's tougher. You know, the biggest thing is don't reuse passwords. You really do not reuse passwords. Yeah. Do not reuse passwords. Do not reuse passwords. And everyone does it. But the, the reason we say that is when one database gets hacked, it's usually something that doesn't have great security. Like it might be an auto parts website, say. Right. So if I signed up with my email and the same password I use for everything else on this auto parts website, then that gets hacked. Now that email and password combination is available for someone to try on my bank. I can definitely say that ever since I've become a one password user, I, I no longer do that. I can't claim that I, I didn't used to do that, but I no longer do. And the software is pretty good. Even I really like that it tells you, hey, we've detected that you've used this password before. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's is, that's great. I'm glad they've got that now. And Google Chrome will do that too. If you save passwords in Google Chrome, it'll tell you like these passwords been compromised. We found them in a database on the dark web, which is helpful, but also really scary. Yeah. It, it, um, it, it's good that they're improving that though. Use, the usability of the tools to kind of help people make better decisions. I mean, the problem is the password is the wrong abstraction. I mean, passwords are, are bad. It's It's one of these things where we have applied what works on a human level to computers in a way that it doesn't work. I'm not sure what the right abstraction is. You know, I like YubiKeys. I use I use YubiKeys, but it's, you know, the single sign-on, right? LastPass, Okta, whatever. Like those are those are really good. I wish they were more but... ubiquitous. <laughs> <laughs> I could not resist. Everybody was rolling their eyes right at this moment on the podcast, but I had to throw that in. That was good. I liked it. <laughs> you know they're, they're the wrong abstraction and every once in a while someone will come around and be like i'm going to solve passwords like i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to solve this i'm going to they're going to fix this problem but i don't think anyone's done it yet in a way that's widespread yeah that's really the key is the adoption um, also so I do, I do want to change the subject to some other area where we do have at least some some things in common you know you were talking about boot camps and you have a lot of opinions about boot camps, and I would love for you to share some of them, especially the controversial ones. Uh, what do we have in common? Did you go to a boot camp? So I, I didn't go to a boot camp, but there's a local boot camp here where, where I am in South Florida, and there's a boot camp called Iron Hack. And I, I know uh, I'm friends with some of the folks at the boot camp, and I've given a couple of talks at previous cohorts back when, you know, folks were in a classroom together. Yeah, just on, Good. you know, for really just practical advice for folks starting out in industry of, you know, like how to find a job and, you know, how to interview and how to get through that process and, you know, what should I do next? Uh, you know, common questions like that. And I just, you know, tried to share some practical advice. That's awesome. That's, yeah. I'm, that's really great. Boot camps need more of that. It was um, fun. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's the the format is exciting because you know, and, and I'm sure you've noticed this in the in the demographic makeup of whatever the boot camp is. I don't even have to be there. I don't even have to know. I just I know this about boot camps. Right. They are less white and less male than computer science programs. That has been my observation as well. Yeah. Yeah. There has to be so 
you know, when we talk about diversity in tech, one thing you hear a lot of people talk about is this idea of the pipeline problem. Mm-hmm. And where, for whatever mysterious reasons, computer science courses are not very diverse. And so your, your computer science graduates are not very diverse. And so if you're just hiring out of those programs, then you are not really hiring or you have a harder time hiring people that don't already make up the majority of the demographic of the place you're hiring. And there's definitely a reactionary faction in tech that would argue that diversity in itself is not desirable, which is bullshit because we are right now, most of our lives are lived through software. And that is even more true now that we are all quarantined. And part of that is not going away. I think once quarantine ends, you know, we have, we've moved huge chunks of our lives into the remote sphere. And that is governed by software. The business of building software is now the business of constructing reality for other people. And software users are everyone, right? Everyone's reality is filtered through the lens of software that is built by software engineers. And if software engineers do not at least have some experience in the demographics that they're building for, then they make worse software and they make reality less pleasant for other people. So even, you know, there's a lot of economic arguments, like, you know, there's all these studies, diverse teams do better, they make more money. And that's true because they're building a better user experience. And, and, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm deep in the back end everywhere that I've worked. You know, I, I don't really get to see the end product of the thing that I'm building. But what we are making isn't programs, it, it's tools for people and it's realities for people. And if you're building a bad one, people are going to use something else or they're going to use your thing, but only as much as they have to. So if you get diverse viewpoints, if you get diverse experiences, diverse backgrounds into your team in the first place, then you're able to build richer, more diverse realities, and you're able to build a better experience for more users, make better software, make a better world. Like that's diversity is extremely desirable in software engineering and yeah, boot camps. In every endeavor. Yeah. 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 In every endeavor. You know, it's a direct response to the dickheads. Yeah. There's a, I always ask a question in the talks that I give at the boot camps. I, you know, I look out into the, the crowd of students and I ask them, how would you, what, you know, one of the things that I say is when you interview, you should know what value you're adding to the organization. And mm-hmm. I ask the, the group, you know, right now, you know, please, you know, raise your hand if you if you can share with me, you know, what value you think you bring to the organization. And at first, nobody raises their hand. And, you know, it's like, it's like incredibly disheartening at the moment, you know, like in that moment, I'm like, here's the thing. And here's what I want to share with you is you are all selling yourselves short. One of the things that I really love about the bootcamp demographic is that these are folks that are coming, you know, so yes, they're incredibly diverse, but they they have a 
you know, just this incredible diversity of experience, life experience, many, if not most, are pursuing their second career. They they tried something else. Uh, they may have studied something else. And, you know, they want to move on to, you know, technology. But all of those prior experiences inform how they look at the world, how they approach problems. And, you know, I tell them, look, this is, this sounds cliche, but it's not. It's your, the experience that you bring is, is unique in the world. There's no other you. And, you know, then I ask them, tell me how many of you have never had to overcome an adversity? You know, of course, they're all like, of course, <laughs> we're overcoming adversity right now, sitting here listening to you. But, <laughs> you know, these, these are all valuable experiences, you know, that, and I, I think that, you know, folks just like, oh, well, that's just life, you know. Well, yeah, sure, it's just life. But it's, you know, in order to get here, you've had to, you, you've had to overcome some adversity. You've, you've had to make, you know, difficult decisions. And all of that is part of the story of what you bring to the table. And sure, there are the technical skills and you're here to get some of those. But that's not really, folks that are, that are interviewing bootcamp graduates, they're not hiring you based on your vast experience in that particular field. In a sense, I mean, certainly they're hiring you for a well-known or well-established set of fundamental skills that I think, you know, if the, if the boot camp has a good reputation that they can count on you to have, but they're really hiring you for, you know, some of those intangibles. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's absolutely true. And these are intangibles that you don't get from people who haven't been in the workforce doing something else. Yeah. You know, without boot camps, I, I don't know how I would have gotten into programming. We talk about being self-taught, quote unquote, but it's, it's actually very hard to get someone to interview you without some kind of credential. And I think that a big problem with boot camps now is there are so many and because there is no standardization for them, that credential has it, it, it's meaningless. Um, it's certainly, you know, you don't diluted some. Sure. Yeah, you don't know. Someone says they came from a boot camp. You don't know whether they learned anything or not. Right. And you know, it would be nice if there was a standardization for it, but there isn't. Right. And they're all for profit, or most of them are for profit. So the incentive isn't necessarily to produce good devs as much as it is to get more people in and they still end up relying on your connections once you get out of the boot camp to find a job you know for me I was in San Francisco I knew a lot of people I was going to these closure meetups and making friends and getting to know people that way but my connection that led to my first job actually came from someone I knew from my college. And I went to a fancy college that looks good on a resume. Yeah. And ultimately that got me an interview. You know, my husband did the Android program at Lambda School and we went through because I had a, I had a great experience with my boot camp and uh, my husband, he's a, he's a brilliant guy, but he didn't want to go into debt. So he didn't go to college. He has a, you know, he has a certificate from a city college. And so I was like, you know, we'll get you into boot camp. Like you're, you've been modding your video games for ever. You're great at programming. Like you're great at problem solving. And he excelled in his boot camp, and then just couldn't get interviews. Hmm. And part of the problem is in the time between when I graduated and when he graduated, 
a lot of the work of sifting through resumes became automated. Mm. And they're just set to throw out anyone who doesn't have a bachelor's degree in something. Mm. <laughs> so that's a problem, right? You know, boot camps, they both introduce a credentials problem and don't solve the credentials problem. Yeah, I and, mean, uh, I, I, I agree completely with your sentiment earlier about, and, and this is another thing that I, another small piece of advice that I share with folks, it, it really does matter that you cultivate relationships. I, I think this is just, and, and I don't know that, I mean, certainly, you know, standardization of could, could help alleviate some of these problems. But ultimately, if you, even if you have folks, you know, you have two candidates both of which have passed the same standardized test, let's say, and have on paper similar qualifications, but you know one of them, or they were referred to you by someone whom you trust, yep. they're, they're going to win out, right? And that that is yep. just fundamental human nature. You know, so it, it pays to expand your 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 network and to get to know folks and, you know, build trust and credibility through, you know, interpersonal relationships. I think there's really no substitute for that. Yeah. And that's why I think that, you know, what, what, what we do trying to build these communities where people can talk to each other, even if they can't talk to each other in person, uh, is really important work. The work of community building is very, very important. But I think that with what boot camps have kind of exposed is that software engineering is a trade, like being an electrician or like plumbing. You know, we can, there is an academic discipline and it's exciting. Uh, I really like it. Uh, I didn't know I liked computer science until I had already started doing software engineering. Right. But that is a different discipline from the trade that you learn at the boot camp. Agreed. And yeah. it would be nice to see the apprenticeship model that other trades have, where instead of paying to learn a skill at an unstandardized place that might or might not be able to help you get a job. Employers are paying you to learn and become useful for them later. I think that the apprenticeship model makes a lot more sense. The problem right now with the ecosystem is there's these these kind of predatory apprenticeships where you know you come out of a boot camp and you are willing to take a software engineering job for less money than someone who came out of a CS program because it's still more money than you were making at your old job. And so there's sort of this underclass of, of engineering jobs that's been created that are replacing the traditional junior engineering jobs, right? It, it's hard to find a junior position. Now, instead, what you find are these faux apprenticeships where you've already paid the boot camp right. to learn, and then you go into a company that gives you a junior engineering load of work at half the pay with no benefits and you get discouraged and you leave. So it doesn't fix the pipeline problem. If the pipeline is dropping CS graduates into junior engineering positions, or now they just call them engineer positions mm. and it's dropping boot camp graduates into these fellow apprenticeships, then you still end with the people who the people who get dropped into the better track staying and the people who get dropped into the worst track leaving. Yeah. So that's my biggest concern with boot camps right now is that 
companies have adapted to them by producing jobs that are not junior engineer jobs. And you end up with an underclass of boot camp graduates who are less male and less white. And they are now the lowest paid, least supported people at the company. So I would be remiss if I didn't. Uh, this is like the perfect segue <laughs> to the shameless plug at Newbank. We are hiring and we, we are hiring not indentured servants, but junior junior engineers. You don't even necessarily need to know closure. We, you know, we, we teach people closure. What we're looking for is inquisitive folks that, you know, have integrity and diversity does matter tremendously. At, at New Bank. I'm going to tweet and, that because yeah. I always get people who are like, I want to learn closure. I want to be an engineer and uh, like go to New Bank. Yeah. They'll take care of you. We will. We will. And, uh, you know, we can we can teach you closure. The the things that, we, you know, we that's why we the traits that we look for are not necessarily that. I mean, sure, if you know closure, great. Awesome. You know, but that that isn't the foremost requirement by any means. Well, I'm just going to do. A, yeah. Well, I. I and it was uh, completely <laughs> unscripted. So the, the best ones usually are. I, I just want to be cognizant of the time. I Time has flown by. It's a, we've been at it for over an hour and I've just had such a great time talking to you so far. But I, I do want to be mindful of the fact you showed me your incredibly cute baby who I'm sure needs at least some of your attention. So I just wanted to take the opportunity to thank you. And this has been a lot of fun for me. Yeah, thank you so much. This was I had a great time. I'm sorry. Uh, I, well, I would I would apologize for drifting, but you Not like to change subjects a lot, which is that's great. I love that. It's my favorite format. <laughs> <laughs> good, uh, good. I'm hope I'm hope the listeners enjoy it too, and I'm sure they'll let us know. Before we go, though, we also have sort of a a, a tradition, you know, to end an episode. Is so uh, we like to ask our guests for some piece of advice, any piece of advice that you'd care to share with the world. Uh, get to know people, you know, don't, don't be afraid to make friends in, in strange places. You know, it's, we are writing software, but we're writing software for people. Great advice. Great advice. Even if that doesn't come naturally to you, do it. It's worth, it's worthwhile. (laughs) Right on, right on. Well, all right, Mia, thank you. It was a pleasure to meet you. I'm sure I'll be seeing you on the apropos cast and hopefully when the world kind of gets a little bit back to normal we'll be able to say hi in person at you know the conj or a strange loop or somewhere out there yeah that'd be great i'm, I'm so excited conj is gonna be in durham every year now right is that the plan i believe so ah love it awesome yeah all right well i wish you a wonderful evening and for all of you listeners out there stay safe have a great weekend and this has been another episode of the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is brought to you by Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to the past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, cognitech.com cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at cognitech.com. 
Our guest this week was Mia, who is exactly 25% of the Apropos Closure podcast, which you can find on YouTube and any purveyor of fine podcasts. And at the risk of repeating myself, we here at Cognitect are hiring engineers, project managers, product managers, technical writers, technical onboarding specialists, and people interested in education. So if our journey sounds exciting and interesting to you, reach out to us at jobs at Cognitech.com. Our host this week was Christian Romney, who is at Christian Romney on Twitter. Episode cover art is by me, Russ Olson, and includes a photograph by Karen Cross. Audio production is by Bear Cave Audio with a tiny bit of help from me. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster, Joe Smith, and Jarrett Benford. The main theme music is by Newbank's own Otto Nascarara Aka Nasca. You can find his music on Spotify, Deezer, and Apple Music, and you can find links in the show notes. I'm Russ Olson. Please stay safe and healthy out there. It's been a long, long road, and we are not there yet, but we are getting there. Thanks for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.